We were a part of the biggest wrestling company in the entire world, and no one even knew it was happening. I'm going to show you something. I'm going to show you the future. To me, FCW was life-changing. Invaluable. It was my coming of age. Growth. It's my foundation. The producer of champions. Probably one of the greatest times of my life. It changed my life. A career-saving experience. An ego check. Blue collar. Influential. Magical. To me, it was special. Lovely. FCW, to me, was the key to the future. another non-episode of FK NXT, but this is still your boys, the Nando, and of course... Boy, it's your boy, uh, Billy Gunn ain't the only one and only. Holla at your Brody ASAP Wody, Blocksteiner. The, the, the Brody Lee? <laughs> Mr. Brody Lee, I should say? Yeah. Mm, <laughs> of course. Of course. <laughs> Cool. So this, uh, welcome, welcome everybody. This is going to be another improv two episode of our spinoff series where we kind of just, uh, review some one-off shows or even some specials. And in this case, we will be kind of just doing our, you know, it's not really a formal review or anything, but our overall impressions and just what we thought of the NXT, or not even NXT, <laughs> before NXT. Uh, Pre-NXT. Yeah. Pre-NXT. <laughs> Pre-NXT. <laughs> this is uh, <laughs> the WWE Network special, a future WWE, the FCW story. So, yeah, I, uh, I remember when this came out a couple of months ago. And what's interesting is this, I really think that uh, this special kind of flew under the radar because i remember seeing it but i remember a bunch of things also coming out at the same time when this special came out i don't know about you what else came out around this they i could have swore they did a whole bunch of those like um wwe best ofs like i've been watching those yeah all of those on the network i think it was before of course the uh global pandemic where they were Still trying to do business as usual with promoting WrestleMania 36. Mm. And I have a feeling, based on the later half of this special, where they bring it up about how it's only a few miles away from the stadium, that I think this was, yeah, maybe two or three weeks before WrestleMania 30, and of course, or 36, I should say. Mm -hmm. And they were still trying to figure out if. Uh, if they were actually going to run the show live or mm. if they were going to do what, what they eventually did. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I, I think they were also promoting ruthless aggression series. So this one really fell under the radar for a lot of people, you know, I feel like they didn't even finish ruthless aggression. Like, yeah, like they just did like three episodes and then that's it. Yeah. I, I remember seeing at the end of the last episode that they said that they were going to return with more in the fall. Oh, for real? Yeah, I think you're right where they probably weren't planning it because they probably thought they could just, like, knock them all out in a row. Mm -hmm. But, of course, with everything, I bet they kind of just had to postpone it and then they were probably thinking, yeah, we can just release them later in the later in the year, you know? It's terrible. Yeah. It was, like, just getting good, too. And now it's, you're going to have to, like, end it and you're going to be like, all right, let's pick up where we left off. I'm like, no, do that. Yeah. Finish yeah. it. It's rude. <laughs> but you had actually told me about this one, the the FCW story, because I didn't... I forget what I was doing during this time, maybe just editing some of the episodes, but I just never had time to get around to watching it. And then you had told me about it first, and you you gave it a, a strong recommendation to, to check it out. Yeah, dude. Like, I had almost not watched it. Yeah. Like, I'd seen it, and I was like, man, this is probably going to be a collection of stuff that I've seen already. Yeah. And then I forgot what we were doing here, and then I think we were doing something similar. We were probably, like, folding clothes or something like that. And then we watched it, and I was like, oh, you know what? This is really good. 
I wonder if Nando's watching it. <laughs> yeah. No, because I think... I remember we were talking about it in a episodic episode of the podcast where we had, of course, brought up FCW and everyone's history beforehand with Heath Slater and Wade Barrett and everybody. But uh, even to this day, they still don't have FCW TV on the network. They just have certain match highlights. Mm -hmm. And this is probably the first time that they've done like a documentary for FCW. But I find it kind of interesting. And I guess when we kind of give our impression review of this special what i found interesting is that they yeah they kind of just put this out out of nowhere especially it was like like i just mentioned it's kind of random that they would put this now while they were promoting ruthless aggression because you could probably make the argument that this is probably the next uh era after the ruthless aggression era you know what i mean like the uh you know what you're right. That yeah. probably is because, like, ruthless aggression gave us kind of like the the Ortons in them, mm-hmm. the Ortons, the Cenas, the Batistas. Mm-hmm. So that was like OVW. Yeah, ruthless yeah, aggression yeah. was a lot of like OVW guys. Yeah. I think by the time that was done, we should be looking at people coming from FCW. Yeah. A few probably still coming from OVW as they were like finishing up, but I think pretty much right after Ruthless Aggression, because what is that? Like the what they call that, like the PG area or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's FCW basically. Like when you think about it, because who kind of came around the PG time? Like what? The Usos? Yeah. Uh, yeah, like all of them, and that was like the Nexus in them too. That was like all FCW, wasn't it? Like none of them for, yeah, none of those. Even Sheamus, Sheamus was FCW too, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he was. Uh, yep. So, mm-hmm. it's it, it was kind of interesting. That's why I was kind of thrown off when they initially came out with it because I would figure, well, they just, of course, they milked a lot of the Attitude Era documentaries the first time the network came out. And now recently, yeah, they did Ruthless Aggression. And I would figure that they weren't going to jump into, yeah, the PG slash FCW era uh, until a couple years later. So this why this is why this documentary kind of threw me off guard on, like, why they would release it in the same time frame. But maybe, hopefully... Yeah, because they didn't even really finish the uh, Ruthless Aggression thing, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So hopefully it was just, like, a, a one-off and probably more to promote the... Um, promote wrestlemania's build at that point but even if they um even if that was their mission and they weren't really trying to promote fcw or the early version of nxt yet i think this this documentary did a really good job of uh just kind of give you giving you a kind of a quick overview of like what things were happening in fcw and the whole developmental with ovw and uh deep deep south and everything Mm -hmm. um so I didn't. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So I didn't. I didn't want to make this like yeah like a review episode or anything, but I I kind of took some notes down and in case if people just kind of wanted a brief overview of some of the uh, highlights. Uh, FCW was actually started by a guy named Steve Kern, who was the president of FCW, and it was interesting because I had no clue who he was until they were describing which uh, wrestling. Mm-hmm personas he was so uh he was it was it really threw me off guard because of course he's older now but when they kind of showed clips of him being skinner from from back in the 90s that really was like oh i remember him but i didn't know that that was actually him Mm -hmm. yeah portraying him no definitely i was like what the heck when he he was one of the doinks too wasn't he yeah so he was uh he was the second doink at wrestlemania 9 when they were doing that uh that gimmick of being two doinks and they were kind of doing the mirror trick. Mm-hmm. And yeah, he was part of the fabulous ones with Stan, Stan Lane and Stan Lane also became a, uh, a backstage announcer for, for a couple of shows in the, in the eighties as well. Uh, but I guess he wanted to get back into wrestling and yeah, he's been with WWE on and off for the last, uh, dec- you know, a few decades because John John Laurinaitis was the one that wanted him to become a road agent, and yeah, he was actually a road agent during the ruthless aggression era. But uh, 
he was he was kind of I guess they were trying to figure out like what they were going to do with the territories because yeah before FCW they had OVW in uh, Louisville and then they had Deep South Wrestling so those were like WWE's two like official but non-official developmental areas they just kind of used them to bring up or uh, send send some of their guys down there to to get trained up, mm-hmm. uh, and then yeah, that's when uh, Kern had actually started FCW down in uh, in Florida. So it's kind of interesting where I never knew this because especially when I watched FCW back in the day on uh, Daily Motion that we had talked about on a previous episode, mm-hmm. that I thought it was where yeah, like WWE had you know bought this place and especially when i saw the tv show where like the graphics and the production level is it's pretty high caliber as as far as a local independent show like you can clearly tell it had the uh the fingerprints of wwe's production work with the the graphics and uh the presentation but when they when they kind of go over the documentary uh it's kind of interesting where yeah he actually ran everything in fcw and wwe never even owned it they were just kind of they just paid him to run everything down there. So how crazy is that, that you would make this guy pretty much like still in a weird way, an independent contractor where he's running his own company, but he's hosting your contracted wrestlers. You know what I mean? I know. Right. It's like here, you get these kind of like, these are loner wrestlers, you know, but we're going to need these when they're ready to go. Yeah. So thanks. It's kind of like, I mean, I guess it's almost kind of like how baseball's minor leagues work because they'll have, mm-hmm. or even like if you think basketball, how they have the, uh, the Santa Cruz Warriors, which is like their, uh, their developmental, they have like a developmental league right, right underneath the uh, NBA and they got like their own you know, like the whole coaching staff and like all of that, that's not associated with the Golden State Warriors. Yeah. Like they run them independently, but like the Golden State Warriors will, you know, like put players back over there and pull from in there whenever they want. Mm -hmm. But it's like, they don't help them like operate how they're doing it. You know what I mean? So it's kind of like in the same thing there, I think. But does, uh, does the Warriors or the different teams actually own those minor leagues or are they run independently? You know, I, th- I think they might own them because they're kind of like a farm system like that. Oh, okay. But did WWE, WWE didn't own FCW though, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. That's what, that's what makes it interesting because when you think about it, it, it would be weird in this case, like if in the uh, NBA is an example where I'm not saying they're going to send uh, Steph Curry down there, but Imagine if they send him down to their uh, their minor league, and all of a sudden, like Curry gets injured on their dime. It it would be the same thing. Like at that point, they were sending some talent back down to FCW, like Kurt Hawkins and Zack Ryder. But what would happen if one of their guys got injured down there? You know, it, it'd be kind of a, a sticky situation, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. So I uh, I always just found it really interesting how yeah throughout this whole thing wwe never owned any of them actually yeah they didn't own ovw deep south or uh or fcw they just kind of like used their services and then they would send all their talent down there but damn that's crazy yeah (laughs) so what's kind of interesting is i made a note of some of the guys that came from each of those organizations and for uh for Deep South, yeah, it's kind of a crazy where in Deep South Wrestling, you had both Bella Twins, Tyson Kidd, Heath Slater, and Natalia come from there. So all those folks had to pretty much move out of that area and then move over to, to Tampa at that point. And it seems like the only one I had seen that came from OVW was, uh, was Drew McIntyre. And then... A lot of these guys... Spears, no? Oh, yeah, you're right. Yeah, uh, Spears as well. The other folks is kind of a mystery because it doesn't seem like they came from either OVW or Deep South, and those are the guys who probably were just on the indies. And it's uh, guys like Seamus, Corey Graves, Barrett, Kofi, Seth. Uh, Baron didn't have any uh, indie cred. He just came in as a brand new guy. Sasha... 
Serena Corbin, right? Yeah, he was just he was came out of football, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Big E, Bailey, Page, Fandango. So it seems like a lot of those guys, yeah, were already either in the Florida area or they were just signed from uh, from the indie circuit, and then they just decided to go um, move out to Florida for the opening of FCW, and yeah, it's a uh, it's crazy because later on in the episode, Heath kind of mentions the whole thing of like, yeah, a lot of people had to make the choice if they really wanted to follow their, uh, their passions to, to keep their training going and, uh, to move all the way to Florida. But for a lot of the guys, it kind of worked out where it was their first time and they were just getting their start in FCW. Uh, with the, with the amount of uh, things that they had to do, Steve Curran actually had to get a bunch of trainers. At this point, I don't know like if they were all brought on at the same time or if they were brought on in, in spurts, but the list of coaches, like the, the main coach was uh, Dr. Tom Pritchard, and he was the lead trainer. Then you had Billy Kidman, Norman Smiley, Joey Mercury, and of course Dusty Rhodes was more of the, uh, the trainer, but more of... He, he was more of an advisor slash promo coach at that point. I, I think more than likely the other guys were doing more of the in-ring work. But uh, when you look at the list of trainers, like that's a crazy amount of talent there to, to have as trainers down there in FCW at the time, you know? It's pretty high quality, like for just being a quote-unquote indie company. Mm-hmm. Like they, they definitely had some, 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 some up-north money. Yeah. They were saying how uh, this is, of course, now a lot of them are, you know, on and off because of the whole um, global situation. But a lot of them were still there before everything had to happen, like Smiley and uh, Kidman. And uh, I think, yeah, from from time to time, they still had Joey Mercury down there. But uh, and I I think, yeah, even I think even Dr. Tom Pritchard still does like guest appearances because now he runs. I think his own school with Kane, actually. Uh, so they run their own uh, wrestling academy. I don't know if it's in... Um, I should look this up. I'm actually not sure if they run it from from Knoxville or not, but uh, but they they do have a... Um, Mayor Wrestling Federation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, would, I, would, I would definitely go. <laughs> Choke slam you. <laughs> I think later on they say that uh, Kurt Hawkins, he uh, he was actually close. Him and Ryder were actually close to getting let go from the company because you got to think about this was in roughly 2009, and Ryder and Hawkins had just had like their run with uh, the whole La Familia angle with Edge and Vicky and and that whole storyline in 2007 2008, and they were just kind of used as uh, the Edgeheads. But after that, when once that storyline finished, they didn't really have anything left to do with them. So they weren't using them on TV or anything. And then when Kurt Hawkins had heard about this whole FCW thing, he asked them, well, like, well, uh, I'm not really doing anything. You can might as well send me down there just so I, I have something to do. And I guess it, it worked out in his favor where they saw more potential from him after that. And saved his career. What's that? He saved his career with that one. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And he, uh, it was kind of cool where they were showing, um, they were showing footage of Norman Smiley's trademark body slam because he had done it a very unique way. And mm-hmm. Kurt Hawking has has actually said like, "Oh, that's really cool. Can you can you teach me how to do it?" And he taught him how to do it. And then afterwards, he had uh, asked uh, Smiley actually just said like, "You know what? You can have it. Like, uh, I think you've earned it." So I, I always like stuff like that when when former wrestlers kind of uh, pass down certain moves or certain uh, techniques down to talent like that because it, it kind of just shows you that, that level of respect, you know? Yeah, no, that's really dope. That's, you know, it's cool to just see that pass down. And it's like, it's also really cool when people kind of like try not to use other people's finishers like out of respect. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, I would, I would imagine that happens a lot in even... I would imagine when you were training, uh, when you were training as well, that even though no one probably really had a 
a unique move or finisher. Like it, it may have been already a, uh, it may have it may have already been borrowed from like WWE or AEW or whatever. But the, but the fact that you wouldn't use, uh, like if someone was using the sharpshooter in that territory, you wouldn't be using it either. You know? No, not at all. Yeah, it'd be like nah. You know, you only get one of those. Like yeah, yeah. Curses. Like yeah. <laughs> So, uh, speaking of the, uh, the local wrestling scene here, when, uh, when you and I kind of started, yeah, we had, uh, APW and what was interesting is in this part of the documentary, once, uh, people like Seth or Charlotte ended up getting called up to, uh, either they got signed or they had to move down there to, uh, FCW, they had mentioned the, the actual warehouse and office space of of fcw and they both had mentioned like how i mean like i had mentioned before they're signed to wwe but they're not working at a specific uh performance center at, at this point so they report they report to uh this warehouse and the way that they describe it is it's pretty funny because hawking or i should say uh seth and charlotte both describe it where as soon as you enter there's uh the office is like on the left side of of the door as soon as you go through the door and it remind it re- totally reminded me of APW because APW was literally the same thing where it's just like their office was just this space in this industrial area in Hayward like in the middle of nowhere <laughs> uh, and it was the same thing as soon as you walk in the door there's like a window office to the left side and that's literally the only office in the whole building and that's where uh, you would pretty much just talk to either Roland or anybody else who was uh, in the office that day about if you wanted to sign up or or just any uh, anything that you wanted to work out with APW. So that definitely brought me back to APW days when Charlotte and Seth were talking about that, where uh, it's like you think it's like this grander than life thing, but when you actually go to the uh, developmental part, it's really... Uh, grassroots I, I would say you know that is probably the best way to put it like grassroots because like just hearing that description is almost verbatim the same description of pwr so you kind of just like mm-hmm. you walk in and then i think the place doubled as another place because oh, yeah. gabe was sharing it with his dad so there was some of his stuff when you first walked in there was another office to the left and then right through the next like two steps to the right uh-huh. the ring and you're just like oh okay and then there's like a, a lift up garage gate in the back and it's like alright but I'm pretty sure the PWR area was like it was I think it was a little bit smaller than the uh, APW garage though oh was it? I think so yeah cause the uh, PWR uh, spot is not too big yeah I've never yeah I've never had the honor of going to PWR space in general but uh yeah, I've definitely been at the garage a few times, either just to watch a show, or when I was uh, when I was working there during my time. And yeah, it's it's pretty much yeah, just like any industrial warehouse kind of format where it's two stories, but even the two stories are very small. And uh, yeah, if you for people who've ever seen uh, the Beyond the Mat movie from uh, from the '90s, it's it's pretty much that. Whatever you saw from there, it was literally the, the same thing uh, throughout their whole time there. So nothing really changed. But yeah, definitely just seeing and hearing uh, the wrestlers' feedback about how FCW was, it, it it made me feel better that like if WWE was in that situation, then literally every other indie, indie company was in the same spot, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Even like... Even less, like if you sit back and think of places like ECW, they was doing stuff at a Paul Heyman's house. Yeah, yeah, and they yeah. just had events. They didn't even have nowhere to train. Yeah, yeah, that's what. Uh, that was crazy. <laughs> that's what I really liked the most is just kind of giving you the 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 rawness of everything, where it wasn't glitz and glamour. It's pretty much if you yeah if you're if you were more of a indie uh, indie supporter, then this totally gave you that that mindset and like realistic side of uh, the independent scene, which I really liked. Yeah, definitely. Then um, what, what I thought was pretty cool is that Tyson Kidd actually kind of gave a, a pretty good recap of the actual trainees that would uh, 
wrestle in FCW. And he had actually said that, yeah, roughly 70% of the trainees that they either signed or were training in the facility, 70% of them were actually uh, wrestlers on the indie scene or had some kind of wrestling experience, while the other 30 were still a mix of, uh, yeah, like uh, collegiate athletes from, you know, baseball, football backgrounds. Different backgrounds and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, like models and cheerleaders and stuff like that. So, yeah, when you when you think about that ratio, it's actually pretty good compared to what I would imagine, like in the early days, where it would probably be either fifty fifty or even less than that. You know? Yeah, the the territory days are like different from like the indie scene. Like that's two different. Yeah, you know I mean that's two like different generations in wrestling for sure. Mm-hmm. Because the territories were essentially almost like the indie scene, but it's like. Not just because their champions were kind of their scene spread over like um like wider areas. So you would have like Jim Crocker promotions that would be in a couple of states mm-hmm. versus like APW is out of Hayward. Yeah. Or like you'll have, you know, uh one of them NWA promotions or like the AWA promotion, they'll like occupy whole areas. Mm-hmm. You know, you got uh what was it like PWG is just kind of only out of one city, you know what I mean? So and then to that, like, th- but that kind of thing bred for more, like, of the same or more variations because, P- you know, PWG and APW are like two totally different companies, but they could have pretty much the same roster almost interchangeably. Yeah. PWR, APW, they're totally different companies, but they almost verbatim have the same roster. Yeah. And then, but, you know, back in the day, it was a big deal when, like, Ric Flair and Dusty Rose would wrestle because they didn't really occupy the same space at the same time. Yeah. Like, Ric Flair was more kind of, like, in Crockett promotions doing his thing, while Dusty was more just kind of, like, your traditional NWA, like, kind of champ. But then they, you know, would kind of cross and they'd be like, alright, this is a big deal when they get together. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind of curious about that would actually be stuff that I, I would want to listen to on a on a different podcast from people who came up during the territory days. I'm like how their developmental stuff were, you know what I mean? Cause you always hear stories about the territory system when folks would cross over and yeah, like go to different territories, but you don't really hear the stories about like who trained them and like how those train training camps actually were during those days. You know, those were the days where everybody would just be like, yeah, man, they didn't have a ring. All they had was like this mat in a barn yeah. and with some real ropes. And then when they yeah. slammed you, you didn't really know how to bump. You just kind of figured it out. And then you go to Japan and yeah. they beat the crap out of you. And then you come back to America. Like that's <laughs> all the dudes in the territory days. Like nobody, apparently nobody trained back in the day. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, it was a definitely a different time. And I would imagine it's kind of crazy seeing that where I, you know, when dusty was still around, I, I, I bet it was it was a trip for him to see how you describe like all those like guys who just train themselves or just learn to just like watch how to uh, to take a bump and then to see the uh, the OVW FCW days and then seeing the performance center of like how freaking uh, advanced that was. So just to see that that change in in training. Must have been like a trip to see over the years, you know. And you know what's even crazier about that is that uh, have have you been watching any of the last ride stuff? I have, yeah, yeah, yeah. So like, you know, when they had them running the ropes and doing like taking bumps, mm-hmm. it's the exact same stuff you do now, like almost verbatim. And I'm like, all right, so since nobody trained back in the day, where did you learn that? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. So actually, this is kind of perfect because i was just going to ask you about the uh the training regiments there because later on they uh the seth rollins was actually mentioning the the man in the middle routine which is pretty much you have one you have five people in the ring one person in the middle you have four people in each corner and then they run uh a sequence five times you know they run they run a, a sequence of moves and then they do that five times and then they start doing a different set and then they just keep doing that over and over up to an hour. And the goal is pretty much to build the person in the middle's cardio to, you know, to be ready to do anything as far as like doing a Broadway match and everything. Uh, 
from your ex- from your experience, was there something similar, or what kind of routines would uh, would you have to kind of do in in training camp at that point? It would be something very similar. So either it would be like uh, one person in the middle, and then uh, so the, the more typical one would be like one person in the middle, everybody in a line. The person in the middle is assigned to do the task. The per- next person in the line takes the bump. You take the bump. That person who did it goes away back in the line. Now it's your turn to give somebody else the bump. Uh, man in the middle would be, say, like uh, I could describe that. Say, like, if I'm the man in the middle, my job is to probably like face who's ever uh, kind of like to my immediate whatever direction they want you to start. You're probably what you're going to do is you'll probably uh, walk up to them, you'll lock up and the drill that they probably run the most often or like the most introductory kind of one is uh, lock up, headlock, shoot off, drop down, um, leapfrog, hip toss. And then imagine doing that like to one person. And let's see. Yeah, imagine doing that to one person. And I think when the blow you up the most is when you do it to where every time you do it, you're the one taking a bump at the end. Oh, okay. So then you have to get up, turn to the right, and then like face the next corner. And then you do that same sequence again. Get up, turn to the next corner, do the same sequence again. So yeah, if that's what he kind of like meant by that, that will blow you up pretty quickly. So I get that's probably, you know, if you're doing that over and over and over, just in different sets for like an hour because it doesn't take that long to do it like if you go do it a couple of times like that could be like excruciating because even if you're not the one taking a bump in the middle you have to get up and be ready and kind of like you know catch your breath and get ready because you're going to take one of those bumps in there I think when you take the shoulder tackle or something like that you everybody like so basically when you do that drill Somebody uh, at least takes one bump in the in the drill. So somebody takes the shoulder tackle. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah. So whoever takes the shoulder tackle is the one that turns over, and then they hit the ropes, jump over you. You get up, you leapfrog, and then you give them a hip toss. So then that person would get up, face the next corner, and you would be ready to do it again like that. It it's always getting. I I already. It's good to hear that process because I during my time in APW I definitely didn't see as much of the in-ring training because whenever I would uh, be working with them, I would mostly be there for promo classes because I would try to make sure that whatever they were saying um, was going to be used for future storylines into the, the, the TV show or once they moved over to the, um, the YouTube series, then uh, I would be there just to kind of uh, either help them with recording that or just formatting the the pro the promos for the the camera work when we actually put the graphics and everything over them um so but i would see it from time to time when i would get there maybe a couple minutes early to the uh the training area and people were still kind of running overtime in the uh, training session so yeah just seeing like how they were working those drills it was it was pretty intense from like the five or ten minutes that i saw so i can't even imagine all the stuff that they had to do during like however long a training session is so tiring. Cause it's like, yeah, you could, you could go out there and you could run marathons and you could like ride a bike and stuff like that. And like, I know that that's a different kind of tiring, but like mm-hmm. wrestling tiring is, is different because it's like, all right, I have to throw myself at the ground. Like as, cause the the people who bump the best are not getting clobbered down like that. Like they're getting hit, but they like the people who like snap to the ground really fast are doing that to themselves. So like that's a crazy mind state that they like. So when you see Dolph Ziggler like doing all that kind of stuff, like that's effort to just throw yourself to no regard like that. So I'm like, bro, that's so tiring. Because it's like, how do you train to purposely be thrown on the ground to like? blow you know like blow your air out and it's coming out of somewhere like you're either gonna blow your lungs or you're gonna take a gasp or you're gonna fart and that's just the truth behind it like air's coming out bro and it's it's just interesting to just have to train like that i'm like man this is crazy when you like really start to learn like man sometimes these dudes getting thrown the farthest is because this guy really jumped for you like 
that's that's love, bro. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw I saw uh, I saw a video on Twitter where there was a um, I forget what match it was, but it, I, I'm guessing it was in the mid 2000 where it was yeah Paul London and Kendrick uh, in a tag team match, and I, I guess they were facing Eminem at the time. And there's a spot where John Morrison is on the apron, and then London does his trademark drop kick into a, a splash for the person that's on the on the mat. I'm guessing it was probably Joey Mercury. So it's interesting because when he did the the drop kick, since Morrison was on the apron, he fell, of course, to the to the outside, and then uh, then you just see like the beautiful flip that London does to to pin Mercury, but the wrestling part of like now that you know you and i kind of more know more about the uh the wrestler's point of view and like how to sell that morrison doesn't fall on his back like as soon as he gets hit by that drop kick he's actually falling uh front face so he's gonna land on on the outside mat on on the on the front so he you know he takes a bump that's not really gonna hurt him but the fact that i wouldn't i would probably not even look at that if i didn't know about like the aspects of a wrestler and how they're trained because at that point you're as the viewer you're distracted by the beautiful flip now that you don't care about morrison at that point uh so that's really smart that's really smart psychology in the in the ring because at that point morrison doesn't have to damage his body more than he has to because at that point the focus isn't on him anymore you know what i mean yeah and then like you know uh like when dudes do the monkey flip out of the corner and then instead of like landing on their back, they'll take that full flip over. Like John Morrison used to do that shit all the time. Like he would take that monkey flip oh, and yeah, hit yeah. that flip all the way to his face. Like that makes the other guy look great. It's like, wow. I'll save my other question after I talk about the next part of the special, which, uh, yeah, is the, the actual promos. Mm-hmm. So I, re- I really like this part because overall, oh, I guess I'll kind of talk about it at the end, but overall what I really liked about this documentary is that it wasn't overproduced. It was produced enough where it felt that they had a structure, but it wasn't overproduced compared to uh, to their other documentaries like The Last Ride or any of the, the 24, you know, any of the other documentaries that they have on network. It really reminded me of the, the EC doc the ECW documentary that came out in the mid 2000s where it felt like that kind of rawness where uh, it wasn't, uh, it was produced, but it wasn't overproduced where for the most part they were just letting people talk and say whatever they wanted. I think even near the end of the documentary, Seth Rollins was even mentioned uh, CJ Parker. And you're just like, why? (laughs) Like you, at this point you think, you think someone would have edited you know, edit that out, but they were just kind of letting him be very candid during this, uh, this documentary, which I thought was really cool. This is true. Yeah. It had a very homey feel to it. Like it was just yeah, yeah. like very homemade. <laughs> like they did it with a yeah. camcorder. Yeah. That's what, that's what I liked about it. And then, yeah, when, when they got to the promo aspect of the documentary, that's where it really felt like it was just more genuine and people just, uh, were just, you know, really speaking from their heart where they talked about like, how promo class was where dusty would you know first be kind of hard on you if you just got there and weren't really pouring your heart when it came to doing the promos but if he saw that you were getting better and better and actually trying to improve then that's where he would kind of let his guard down and actually help you out on how to improve in your promos and it was just cool it was just cool seeing that aspect where yeah you had people like charlotte which really surprised me because when you saw her early promos, yeah, definitely you can tell that she had zero wrestling experience, even though that she was uh, Ric Flair's daughter at that point. But just the amount of stuff that she did to improve herself, and especially now when you kind of see her mic work, it's just like night and night and day, pretty much. Uh, and yeah, just to see the guys there where they highlighted like Vicky Guerrero, I should say Vicky and Eddie's. Uh, daughter shawl uh they talked about they talked about adam rose they talked about aiden english so they they talked about a lot of people who are not even in the company but they were kind of giving them like the the rub about like oh yeah they did amazing promo work in in fcw and that's what i really appreciate about the documentary is that they 
really were just speaking the truth and they they weren't just hyping up people who are on the on the current roster you know yeah they really did a chance at almost disassociating fcw with the wwe or kind of like with nxt they kind of kept it in within the realm of like this was fcw like yeah we're coming back to remember fcw for fcw yeah because even uh what was cool about it too is that they during promo class it's kind of similar to the improv class that that we went to where they let them try out different characters like it wasn't where seth rollins had to be this seth rollins character all the time they let him experiment by doing like a superman gimmick or uh like a, a a jock gimmick just so they can experiment with different ranges and and figure out like if they can take one element from a different character and combine it with something else, you know? Yeah, no, definitely. I feel that that's really good. No, like, I liked um, I liked all of it. It was it was a nice look into all of them because especially like with with people like Rollins because he was like those early FCW to NXT kind of people. Like their NXT run is since it wasn't on like live TV or like published or like uh, really, really pushed by like the network, a lot of that stuff went kind of unwashed. So it's like, you almost kind of forget that Seth Rollins and Roman Reigns and stuff like that came from like developmental. Like you almost feel like they just kind of like got signed and show up, but it's like, no, they went through developmental too. Like same thing with Charlotte. It's like, you know, some of her NXT stuff was like, she was already kind of already up there before the network launch or like kind of like very soon after the network launch. Cause she didn't really do hella stuff on NXT as much as she did on like the main roster. So, you know, and then other people like the Usos, like they were already pat like they kind of just showed up. Like nobody really knew that they was on FCW until they peel it back and show you that stuff. So it's good to like get in there and see that kind of stuff. I I really enjoy the FCW stuff. And since especially since like you know that those people are around like our age because they kind of like came from watching the same stuff that we did. So it's like, yeah, I I relate to them more. Yeah, and then uh same thing where they uh, they showed the part where, similar to, I'm guessing, what Gabe and uh, Roland did with APW, they showed how they the students had to literally do everything when it comes to when they would run shows or have uh, East Street teams. That is, is literally like an indie company where all the boys and girls had to set up the ring, work everything at all the the house shows run the flea you know flea market shows run the boys and clubs boys and girls club shows and everything and yeah just like promote everything as far as they had to put the flyers up themselves and like staple it all over the city just to just to garner the uh the promos and everything so that's the part i really loved about this documentary is that it really gave you that sense of okay this is an indie company granted it has a little bit more backing to it because it's you know associated with wwe but this is literally like indie wrestling uh promotion 101 you know you know what it is it's almost kind of cool because it's like them giving you a glimpse into indie companies if you never seen how they work yeah like if exactly you, if you just showed up to an indie show and you didn't really like wrap it around your head that like all the people selling stuff and all the little security dudes like are wrestlers or training to be wrestlers then that kind of gave you everything that you needed to know like wow that's how the rink is there they put it up and they wrestle in it it's crazy oh that's how they do it, huh? So it's like, you know, it, it peels, it gives you a chance. It's weird because they're a very big company, the WWE, but they kind of peeled it back to give you like local, kind of like how local companies work, but it's at the same time putting all the focus on them. Yeah. It's very, yeah, it's, it's very smart where when they finally get to the part where they start running their own TV shows out of the, uh, the warehouse, then yeah, it's kind of cool where they said that Steve Kern also was kind of like a uh, quote unquote, they said like, he's like a cool uncle because he would be pretty much the person that would be like the on-site producer while they were running the show because he would be out there 
greeting all the fans, helping them if they needed to uh, find their seats or helping out, helping them out with the concession stand. So it just really brought me back to like that indie kind of mindset where everyone's doing like two or three jobs just to keep the, the promotion going. And I think that's the, the real grassroots part of it that I really loved about the special and just in general how knowing that FCW really ran that way. But if, yeah, like how you said, like if no one had that insight, if they didn't go to a, a independent show, that this really gave it the insight that most people probably didn't know of, you know? Yeah, no, straight up. I agree. I agree. So yeah, the the later half of this pretty much explains where this is starting to get towards the end of it, where in 2012-ish is where they start kind of bringing up Triple H, of course, and then his idea of like making a more grand vision for developmental with having its own personal training facility and kind of rebranding what developmental was going to be. And then, of course, that brings us to NXT. And sadly, this is where they kind of uh, decide to kind of mutually part ways where FCW was eventually closed down in 2013, but the Performance Center and NXT had, had already begun. So it seems like, in at least in 2012 anyway, both the new branded NXT and FCW were running at the same time. But at this point, they weren't... Um, they were, of course, putting more focus on NXT at this point. And the main reason why is because they had offered Kern a position if he wanted to, you know, work for WWE slash NXT. But, you know, at that point, he kind of, you know, thought about life and said, like, I would have to relocate all the way down... Uh, down there to um, to the new PC and everything that he kind of just wanted to kind of get out while like he was still happy and proud of everything that he did in FCW and I can definitely respect that where especially uh, with his run that he had already done so much and he had uh, he had been really proud of running FCW and producing all these amazing talents throughout throughout their time there and yeah at the end they kind of show where uh, I believe it was Big E, Natalia, Slater, and uh, a couple other folks with Steve Kern, they went back to the old warehouse where um, now it was like a, a jumpy playhouse where it was... Uh, I know, right? Wow. Yeah, it was like a, a jump house, playhouse. Um, what would you call it? Just like a, uh, a playground thing for... Just like an uh, uh, inflatable warehouse? Yeah, 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 for for families to kind of bring their kids to just hang out and, and play and everything. Uh, so it was kind of, mm-hmm. what is that? What do I, what, shout out to pump it up, man. Oh yeah. That's what it was. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. <laughs> pump it up. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I thought that was cool. And especially, yeah. Then, uh, this is where I, this is where I was kind of mentioning to you earlier. Where I felt like this was definitely more of a, uh, kind of like a co-production to promote WrestleMania 36 because, they promote where like yeah this is this is kind of full circle where for a lot of these guys like Drew McIntyre and Seth Rollins that it's going to go full circle where this is where they got their training ground and then WrestleMania 36 is just a couple of miles away from uh, from the stadium there. That's right. But of course, yeah. sadly, yeah, sadly, things didn't turn out that way. But it it was definitely a cool thing where they kind of tried to tie it in together with FCW and WrestleMania that was scheduled to be in Tampa this year. Uh, but yeah, I, I like this part of it too, because you genuinely saw like, and this is why of course Heath Slater is going to be our boy for life. <laughs> Cause you, uh, you saw like a genuine smile and like real heartfelt, uh, emotions from Slater here where he was thanking, Dr. Tom and uh, Steve Kern about like everything, like even from the early days of FCW where it was just like inside the warehouse where they didn't have any air conditioning or they had to set up everything like how we mentioned, but that's the part where they really loved it. And I think even Big E had mentioned it because Big E is a, a hometown boy in Florida. So he said that he really loved his time in FCW because, because of that grassroots mentality where, um, he loves the 
performance center, but there was there was nothing that um, nothing that could measure up to like what people had to do in FCW because it really just felt like a, a true family experience where everyone had their part and everyone had something to do to contribute to the company overall you know definitely yeah it does it'd be like that though man like they got to like be on the road together and stuff so it's like totally different uh so yeah that was pretty much the special like like i said we we weren't gonna review every little thing about the special but just kind of wanted to give our overall thoughts and impressions and yeah kind of like how i mentioned earlier earlier that what i really liked about it is yeah just the real organicness about the interviews and the way they filmed this where it wasn't overly produced it was definitely just something that i don't want to knock it down where it was probably like their b team of editors that were probably told to to make this special while uh everyone else was probably trying to get things ready for wrestlemania Mm. but i think whoever whoever worked on this special i still think that they did a really good job because yeah, it just felt very genuine and definitely reminded me of the fall of ECW uh, documentary from, from the early 2000s, or yeah, mid-2000s, where it was just very organic and people, it didn't feel like they were forcing people to say something or they weren't editing their uh, their sound clips or anything. It just felt like genuine conversations from from what they were talking about from their experiences down in, in FCW. And it'd be ironic if uh, the people who produced this went to school at Full Sail. Oh, <laughs> damn. <laughs> that uh, that would definitely bring it full circle right there. <laughs> like, what the heck? Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, I know we already kind of touched about, touched upon this with, with our experiences in P, uh, PWR and APW, but what else do you think? Um, what else do you think reminded you about your time training there, comparing it to what people were talking about in this documentary with with their training regiments and everything? Training made sense. It's more just like the repetition of the bumping. Uh-huh. The thing that kind of really resonated was uh, how they said that they like, you know, like we'd be like over here at the flea market or like sometimes we'd be at over in this gym. And it's like, yeah, that's how it was. We'd be like in little high schools and then we'd be at the flea market and then we'd be at like the Chavez supermarket and then we'd be at like the soccer tournament. And then like they do all kind of stuff, but like they do stuff at the A stadium. They was doing stuff at a Via stadium. It's like, man. I think around here, don't nobody really like move around like Gabe do. So the hats off to him for sure. Oh yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think my only question about that, as far as the training part of it was since they had mentioned that, yeah, like roughly 70% of the folks were already had some kind of pro wrestling experience, whether it be on the Indies or they were getting trained out from OVW or uh, deep South for for folks like that who have like no background for the the other thirty percent who came from like yeah a different type of sporting or um, athletic background how how are, how are those folks integrated when when they are doing training camps or uh, or uh, pro wrestling camps like this like how is that integrated where obviously you have people who already kind of know the fundamentals of bumping and just doing all these fundamental moves and are a little bit more advanced. So how do you kind of integrate it? Cause it didn't seem like they were doing uh, beginners and pro classes. It seemed like they were kind of just making a hybrid out of it. How, how do you think they went about trying to mix the two pots? You so know, honestly, I bet it was a lot easier for, so if 70% of those people had already gone through training and been wrestling on the indie scene, it was probably so much easier for those 30% people to learn because they had so many other people to like, so you got your trainers and then you got other people that are already wrestling. So then you guys are all just kind of like, you got people to pick that are kind of your peers in the company 
that you could pick their brain on and like actual wrestling stuff versus like if you're like an indie kid or whatever and you just you know you're training you don't really get to interact with the dudes who are like working matches that much other than like they slamming you around like you don't really get to interact with them that much like depending on how big the school is so like for them to have like you know pros training with them so i'm sure they just all did the same drills you know even if you coming off the indie scene you got to know how to bump like and then especially for the WWE, like since they, you know, they're going to travel so much that I'm pretty sure they had long bumping sessions just to get them used to the fact that they're going to be on the road bumping all the time. So then when you got people who are active, like going through normal bumping drills, it's probably easier to pick on to because it's like, oh, OK, this is somebody who's, you know, similar to me. Like, that's how they would do it. You know what I'm saying? So when you see the people, like the, the instructors or whatever, they probably ain't even really got to demonstrate that much. They just tell whoever the most senior there to do something. And then you could just pick, like, they don't really have to get down or show you what to do. They just kind of pick out what's going wrong and where you can improve. I mean, I'm guessing that's how they do it. Cause I know some people, they just train like, Hey, do this. And it'll be like, all right, you didn't do it right. But they won't tell you how you did it wrong. It'll just be like, Hey, you didn't do it right. It's like, all right, well, how can I improve? Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what I uh, that's what I, I find interesting too is trying to find that mix of how do uh, obviously it's not anywhere where like you're gonna get bored of the of the regiments because it is so taxing on your body, but I would imagine that for a lot of people who know how to take like a bump or a body slam compared to someone who's trying to learn it, like how do you how do you keep those more experienced wrestlers engaged when they kind of already know how to do that with like their eyes closed, so to speak, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what you uh, see, that's where you got to really kind of like drill in the type of like mentorship of like ring generalship to where like, if you going to be senior, you got to be good enough to help the people under you work too. So that's where it, it like, you get a different side of it. So you almost get to be like the learner and the teacher at the same time. So it's like, all right, you go from maybe when you were coming up in the indie scene, just always having to be the person who did the drills but you never really led the drill or like you never really led a match because you were always working with somebody senior to you to going in a position to where you're like you're still in class. But if you're going to do trial matches, you have to learn how to lead a match right there. So you get a different like side of like, all right, as opposed to like I was just learning how to work a match. You kind of think you know how to work a match, but it's like, all right, now you got to learn how to. um you got to know how to work a match with TV. So you learning stuff all over again, too, because it's like, all right, you got to lead the match in the right direction for the camera over here versus like you just got to lead the match. So they got to learn a whole different thing all over again because they got now they got like cameras and hard cameras and stuff like that, that, you know, they're going to have to get used to that because they prepping them to go to the WWE. So they're not just only learning how to wrestle. You learning how to like wrestle WWE TV style. So that's where I think the the training for like developmental is much different than training at an indie company. Yeah. No, that makes that makes perfect sense because. Yeah, just seeing how, you know, I can only speak from our experience, but just seeing how people were trained on our independent scene versus what we see from these documentaries from WWE, you can tell it's a different style, especially on their case where they do have to train them in two ways, where they have to train them the fundamentals of how to become a pro wrestler, but then the other side of it is that they really have to train them to become sports entertainers where they have to like, yeah, that's a whole nother beast, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's why I, I, I think a lot of people just don't give them enough credit on their end because it's kind of the equivalent of a, um, kind of like a Broadway performer where they have to learn how to memorize their lines and perform and act. But then they also have to learn how to, uh, either, do their dance moves or to perform vocally so rest i i think like as a pro wrestler in wwe or AEW as well they have to uh really have to learn how to do all these multi-talented things of yeah i'm a pro wrestler but now i also have to be a entertainer and learn how to like look at this camera or how to build a persona where i can sell merchandise and everything so yeah 
It's a- exactly. And then like you got a different type of freedom, like on the indie scene, like you make up all that stuff. Mm-hmm. And you don't really get no feedback on it other than like, well, give it a shot. If it works, work. You, you're, the crowd is your feedback. But like when you work for, you know, a development and you got trainers like that, I'm sure there's more back and forth, more feedback that go inside, like how they should do stuff, what you should do. You know what I mean? Like, so it's just different. So I think like even the people who thought, you know, people like Daniel Bryan, like I'm sure like when he first got in there, he was like, man, I already know this stuff. And they was like, nah, bro, you don't, <laughs> you don't. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, I, I think you picked probably the best example there. And from the stuff that we already covered on the NXT podcast, like that kind of shows you where, yeah, you have to now learn the other half of this of this business when it comes to the 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 big players <laughs> so to speak it's uh, a whole different beast right there man <laughs> exactly awesome man so yeah thanks again for helping me out with this uh this kind of impressions review i guess is what i want to call it just because it's not a I mean, you already know what it is man it's, it's so like you know the fcw thing was just really cool because it spoke to us in a different way that like other documentaries did mm-hmm. yeah 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 yeah, totally. And like, as much as I love the last ride and all the other documentaries that they have on there, it definitely this one. I feel like it's definitely more for folks like us that definitely have dealt with, you know, being a part of the show in some aspect. That it kind of gives us that that insight of uh, we can kind of relate to it, but it also kind of gives you enough information for people who may not have uh, been aware of what people do behind the scenes. And I, I really appreciate that part of it. Cool. So that will, um, kind of do it for our specials. We'll try to do more from time to time, but if, uh, if folks listening had any recommendations of what you want us to cover, definitely give us a, um, give us some recommendations by email or on our social media pages. Just feel free to, give us some recommendations and yeah, we might check it out and give you our feedback on it and cover it in a future episode. Did you have any plugs in particular that you wanted to, uh, or shout outs that you wanted to give out here? I do. I do actually. So, uh, tomorrow I'll be making an appearance on, uh, a podcast called the Ryan Report. It's like the dude who was doing the other podcast that I was on that one time before the battle. Oh, nice. He started up a new podcast and he's like going back and kind of like watching. He's doing watches on like Japanese wrestling. Mm-hmm. But tomorrow we're going to watch Double or Nothing. Oh, OK. You know, I'm, nice. trying to, I'm trying to see our boy Lance Archer, right? No, I, I'm trying I to see our boy. That, you know, I think. Yeah, <laughs> I think it seems straight like- out the parking lot. Like. <laughs> Straight out the back of the bar, Lance Archer, <laughs> man. <laughs> I definitely want to cover those shows too, like stuff that we've seen live. Granted, we won't be able to give you like a full <laughs> card match, but I definitely want to at least give our impressions of shows like that. <laughs> we need to take better. You know what? We need, like when when this is all said and done, and I mean, even if we could possibly do this ever again, mm-hmm. uh, we got to take better notes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't help that we had a few drinks in us before the show started, so... Uh, this, but, this is true. I mean, but he, we had nothing but time to wait anyway, so... Yeah. <laughs> awesome. Uh, on my end, I have, uh, I guess, just one plug-in. I, selfishly, it's for us. <laughs> we, uh, for our parent company, Grow Canvas Grow, we're going to actually have a digital art expo, which... Uh, is kind of taking the spot that we originally wanted to do on June 13th for the Art of the Bay show. We are going to be doing a digital version of that inside of Animal Crossing, and that will be on our Twitch channel. And we actually just got everything set up, so I actually have a URL for people to go to. So if you go to twitch.tv backslash growcanvasgrow, that's where we will be hosting that stream. So... If you wanted to give us a follow, it would be much appreciated. And yeah, we will be having this show on Saturday, June 13th. And yeah, come and check us out. Even if you don't have Animal Crossing, you can still just watch the stream itself. And uh, it'll be it'll be cool to check out. <laughs> and yeah, that is, uh, that's it for me. And yeah, we'll hopefully be doing more of these 
one-off specials where we just kind of do our impression reviews where it's not a formal review where we give a score or anything and then hopefully when things get a little bit better or we might even try to do like how you mentioned we might do like an outdoor nxt podcast review and just start doing them that way who knows we'll, we'll figure something out <laughs> we'll figure we have something. to change the way that we book our shows the same way that the wwe had to change the way that they book uh, their shows so we're just adapting with the times and we're just keeping current with the trends exactly we'll 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 uh we'll do the podcast in front of your cat and that will be our audience <laughs> exactly and he will walk away <laughs> <laughs> He'll listen for like two seconds and be like, ah, and I'm out. <laughs> I've had enough. <laughs> All right. No, thanks. <laughs> All righty. So that will do it for us. Uh, this is your boy Nando and always joined by the amazing Don. You already know what it is. Don, Don Larius. That's it. You already know what it is. <laughs> All right. And we will see you next time. Take care.